Hello, hello, and it's Halloween, and I'm a few margaritas in. Okay, it's one of those quasi-margarita things, those agave wine things, but they're still 14%, and I've drank almost all of the bottle. And, you know, people seem to really like some of those drunk podcasts. Shout out to Drunk Theory out there. You guys are hilarious. And uh, although I might just uh, end up sounding like a fucking idiot, I've been watching... Guillermo de Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. Very good if you're into like Creep Show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Lovecraft, that sort of thing. In fact, it's frozen on my TV screen right now because I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and do that podcast. And I thought I would try to do one live and then I thought, who the fuck is going to listen to it? And then I couldn't figure out how to do it anyway, from which platform. So whatever. By the time you hear this, okay, sirens. There's been sirens. There's been a lot of sirens around here tonight, I'm just here to tell you. I mean, what the hell, we got Devil's Night going on or something? I don't see any fires, but I've been hearing a few sirens tonight. Okay, anyway, excuse me. Ah, yeah, that's the drink. Um, where was I? I'm continuing on my vampiric theme because my last two episodes were Geek du Vampire and Fangs for Listening, which I see are getting a little bit of traction because who doesn't like vampires? Which reminds me, are you watching the AMC interview with the vampire because er, mer, gerd. I know I've mentioned it before, but I am utterly obsessed with Sam Reed. Who is playing Lestat? Lestat wishes he was this much of a Lestat. If you haven't watched it, and you just like vampires, and you want a sexy-ass motherfucking blonde, <laughs> Sam Reed is just killing it. Holy shit, he's killing it. Ooh, I'm fanning myself right now. Which also reminds me that this is my... Omnibus release day, which if you've been listening to me, you also know I've been talking about my Paris Immortal vampire series, which started, I started writing around 2007. And there's five books and I've redone all of them into one giant omnibus and it's out today. But you can also get a Kindle if you don't want to pay the 35 bucks for the big, you know, big ass freaking 8 by 12 whatever paperback. You know, never mind that I retyped the entire thing and changed the ending and cleaned it up and everything. And it gave me arthritis, you know, and all kinds of things. Sure, you don't want to pay the 35 bucks. Fine, fine. Even though it's collectible, you can get the Kindle for $9.99. And that's 1,626 pages for 10 bucks. What a bargain. All right, anyway, I'm sitting here and the candles are lit. We have the Samhain... Uh, sort of celebration. If you are venerating your ancestors, I am there with you because so am I. And this is a part of the evening entertainment, me doing this, because that's right, I'm a pagan, I'm a witch. Shout out to my witch bitches. You know who you are and I love you. Oh, and also shout out to Malicious Women Candle Company. Those are the only candles I burn these days. They are just exquisite. Google them, malicious women, and they have the, the most hysterical labels, but they smell amazing. And I am just wandering all over the place because, like I said, I've, I've had a few drinks. All right.
I think my bottle is almost empty. I should have done this when I had two or three bottles. No, I would be worthless then. Let's just get to it. Was having a discussion the other day with a, I think it was a, I had a, a little boy who was so adorable, about five years old. I think we were talking about why do vampires stop and count grains? This is a, a, a lesser known sort of superstition when it comes to vampires. And it actually, of course, inspired the count on Sesame Street, right? One, one margarita. Ah, 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 ah. Let's just get to it. Odd. Athenaeum.com. That's uh, A T H E N A E U M. Are you totally confused yet? Yeah. I'm, like I said, I'm buzzed. Did I say that? Well, now I have. Let's just get to it. Vampires and Arithmomania. So, a curious component of vampiric folklore, which is actually through the Slavic lands, and it's also down through Greek cultures is a vampire's obsessive compulsive need to count things. They were said to have arithmomania and needed to count things and also count actions. So people would take advantage of this by scattering seeds, salt, grains of rice, or whatever you had around, you know, all around the floors of your house. And if a, a vampire tried to come into your house and did get into your house, they would have to stop and count every seed or grain, which gave you, the homeowner, time to escape. Or if you had a whole shit ton of grain, it might take until sunrise for that vampire to count all of that, and then they would just die. It was also believed that vampires would count all of the holes in a fishing net, which would lead individuals to hang nets by the entrances of their homes. Have you ever seen that? Maybe that's why. It's also tradition or was to spread seeds or grain in a cemetery on the grave of a suspected vampire so that when they rose from the grave, they would be kept busy for a little bit by counting all of the shit. Now, an interesting thing is, is that this obsessive compulsive need to count wasn't necessarily limited to vampires always. It was uh, believed in parts of Italy that witches had a similar issue. And on the eve of St. John's Day, you could defend yourself from a witch by giving her a red carnation because then she would have to count all of the petals, which would give you time to escape. Carnations have a have a decent amount of petals, but I, I don't, I still not sure that you can run fast enough because it's not like there's a thousand of them. Anyway, in America, some people actually believe that witches would count the holes in sieves. So then people would hang those by their doors. I mean, I don't know. I don't, I, I didn't really go into a deep dive of like, why do vampires count? Shall we Google right the fuck now? Why do vampires count? Uh, we'll just go to Quora. <laughs> yeah, that's really, you know. Why do vampires count seeds and rice? And where did it originate? This is an old legend and quite true. Well, it was true back then. Let me take you back to the days of my childhood, before the internal combustion engine, before the steam engine. 
and most definitely before the internet. What was there for a girl to do? Well, become a nun, marry, do needlepoint, have children, become a nun, marry, do needlepoint. Wait, I am repeating myself. Books? Oh no, child, they were far too expensive to have more than a very few. In fact, I was not even taught to read. I learned that perhaps a century later. Talk to people? Remember, transport was primitive, and the average person seldom traveled more than a few leagues from the place of his or her birth. After you'd spent a few years talking to the same people, they get awfully boring. Especially my uncle, Lodvokio. But that's a tale for another day. Life, for a vivacious creature such as myself, when alive, was stultifying in the extreme. And if you've needle-pointed one full-size replica of The Last Supper on a tapestry, you've needle-pointed them all. Life was one very large, but tastefully concealed by a cambric han handkerchief. Yawn. And then I died. Well, sort of. Suddenly, my days vanished and became nights. My maker, I still love you, Dee, but I've been busy. Leave me a message, if you will. Insisted that I keep ladies' pastimes. I considered becoming a nun out of the question. Mary, darlings, I'm child-free free by choice. You might say I am the world's first child-proof top. By the blood, help us. And as I pointed out, books were scarce. People were boring. What was there to do? So yes, I counted rice, grains, beans, beads, coins, and sticks. I was bored out of my undead skull. As I have said, this legend and practice is ancient. Now we have the internet. Look! I still count. I count likes ever so much more than moldy old rice, don't you agree? This was somebody trying to pretend to be Elizabeth Bathory. <laughs> I told you this is going to be a weird one. Um, someone else says, in East and South Asia, there's the hungry ghost, which is not nearly like the European vampire, but can be described as such. A hungry ghost is anyone who dies, who is greedy and envious and obsessed with material things. So when a person dies and they are too mean to leave the people in their formal life, former life alone, they feel uh, felt a need to keep them at rest, even if they were hungry ghosts. So knowing they were greedy and envious, the living people would cast grains of rice on their graves, knowing that they would not want to know how many that you gave them. Basically like, well, how much shit did you give me? <laughs> so... In many cultures, you feed your dead relatives rice if you like them. And that way they would know if you're keeping up with the Joneses. So there you go. And then there's Hungry Ghost uh, Wikipedia, I guess. They've taken this from. Um, it confuses people in the West similar to things like throwing a shoe at someone as a sign of disrespect. It's just a different set of cultures. Da, 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 da. Vampires counting seeds and or rice grains come directly from folklore, mostly in Europe. Some legends carry it even further and say vampires are also compelled to count holes in fishing nets. That is Slavic, so they confirm that. In Europe, the seeds usually have to be millet or poppy seeds. In China, if a vampire came across a sack of rice, he or she would be compelled to count the rice grains. Very occasionally, it had to be mustard seeds. And then this eventually disappeared from our folklore and modern mythology, and nobody really knows exactly why. I'm going to take a stab and say, because it's just really not sexy. It's not sexy. Okay? 
so I'm seeing little bits here just looking at my general Google page that um, Chinese believed it. Uh, <laughs> people just think they had OCD. Vampires found counting amusing. Um, it's just, <laughs> you know, let's ask sciencefiction.net since we're doing Google Relay. Or Bing. Counting is tied to time, someone says on Reddit, and thus mortality. Vampires therefore find counting exceptionally amusing because they're immortal. I think they're talking about the Sesame Street. And other people just say they're OCD. Da 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 da. I, I don't really know why, um, why they do it. You know, I could sit here and Google all day. I could look in my big freaking vampire book. But I have never found it particularly interesting. I usually forget about it. Where were we? I mean, th that's about all there is. Really, that's that's all there is. I don't care. I just thought I'd cover it. How about we go to three real diseases that influenced vampire folklore? And this is a visiblebody.com. From Bran Stoker's Dracula to the 2000 sparkly Edward Cullen, vampire mythology has been part of the popular culture. Blah. You know, I can't speak on the best of days. And now that I've had a few drinks, I definitely can't. I hope you can parse any of the shit that I'm mumbling about. So, what do vampires have to do with anatomy and physiology? It turns out that many of the traits and superstitions we associate with vampires come from actual diseases as well as the biological process of corpse decomposition. So today they're saying that they're going to talk about three of those diseases. Rabies, porphyria, which I name drop in my vampire series, and tuberculosis. So number one, rabies. Humans usually contract rabies from wild animals. So you would expect rabies to, to be associated maybe with werewolves, right? However, in 1998, a paper in neurology by Juan Gomez Alonso puts forth a convincing series of arguments that symptoms of rabies could be front and center in many vampire tales. And actually, side note, in some versions of vampire folklore, vampires or what werewolves become after they die. Did you know that? But before I get into there, let's go over the rabies thing. It's caused by rabies lysivirus, uh, which is transmitted through direct contact with saliva or brain nervous system tissue from an infected animal. Another fun fact, the lysa in lysivirus comes from the Greek word which can mean rabies, but also rage or fury. They wrote, they wrote it in Greek, and I can't, so I can't read Greek. Sorry, I can't pronounce that. It, it infects the central nervous system, and it will eventually reach your brain, causing symptoms like anxiety, confusion, agitation, insomnia, hallucinations, abnormal behavior, and then it eventually kills you. I think we all know that. You're dead. You're dead, baby. It's always, it's almost always fatal if it's not treated before the actual signs appear. But it is preventable today. 
but back to vampires. In A Natural History of Vampires, Eric Michael Johnson provides a thorough summary of Gomez Alonzo's points. There's a parallel between the depiction of the vampire as a savage beast of prey and the erratic and potentially violent behavior of rabies-infected humans. In addition, both rabies and vampirism are transmitted via bites or blood-to-blood -blood contact. Even more, human deaths from rabies tend to result from suffocation or cardiorespiratory arrest. The bodies of people who have died in these ways exhibit signs associated with vampirism, notably hemorrhage, which gives the impression that the person was drinking blood, and a slower decomposition, decomposition, making it look like the person was not truly dead. Of course, side note, a lot of the reasons, and I know I mentioned this before, I'm sure, that, uh, that people thought that corpses were actually vampires. So, uh, obviously, they didn't do embalming, and they didn't understand decomposition. Bodies will bloat after a certain amount of time, and they might have blood around the mouth, you know, and they, they imagine if you dug that up and you saw them, you would think that they looked full and quasi-healthy, because they'd be bloated, right? They would be larger and puffier and quote-unquote healthier looking in a certain sense than when you buried them. And then if you were to view them later, though, now the skin's going to shrink back away after all the gases and everything are gone. And that's what made people think that their fingernails grew and their hair grew, which is a persistent myth. Your hair does not grow after you die. Your fingernails do not grow after you die. Your skin shrinks away. But these are, are legitimate reasons why people would, would look at a corpse and think, oh my God, it's alive, or something's changing in it, because they did not understand this. So... A very interesting point uh, between rabies and vampirism is that during the period when dramatic tales of vampires were first emerging from Eastern Europe, a major epidemic of rabies in dogs, wolves, and other animals was recorded in the same region between 1721 and 1728. How do you like that? Number two, porphyria. Rabies could be a likely explanation for aggressive behavior of vampires and, you know, the trans transmission of vampirism via biting. There's other characteristics of vampires that might have been inspired by a blood condition called porphyria. And actually, from what I had looked up, I think there's five different sorts of things that are classified under the umbrella of porphyria. And... It's not at all some sort of ancient disease. It's a very real medical condition that still affects people today. But before it was understood, you know, as we understand it more today, of course people came up with supernatural explanations for this. It's, it's a group of related disorders. Most are inherited. There are two broad types of porphyrias. There's acute porphyrias which mostly affect their nervous system, and cutaneous porphyria, which affects the skin. The central issue in all types of porphyria is that there are disruptions in the process that produces heme, 
which is an essential component of hemoglobin. Hemoglobin. Drink. Should I drink every time I fuck up? Uh, I would never be able to finish. I'd black out. And I don't have enough alcohol. Okay. Red blood cells contain hemoglobin. 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 Right? And that allows it to transport oxygen from your lungs to your bodily tissues during the gas exchange. Disruptions to heme production will lead to the buildup of chemicals called porphyrins in the body. Acute intermittent porphyria is the most common type of acute porphyria, characterized by sudden and painful attacks. According to your Mayo Clinic, symptoms will include severe abdominal pain, pain in your chest, legs, or back, constipation or diarrhea, nausea and vomiting, muscle pain, tingling, numbness, weakness, or paralysis, red or brown urine, mental changes like anxiety, confusion, hallucinations, disorientation, or paranoia, breathing issues, urination problems, rapid or irregular heartbeats that you can feel like palpitations, high blood pressure, and seizures. Treatment usually involves avoiding the, the triggers that will cause an attack. Like you, you could take medications or drugs there could, or, or medications or drugs actually can cause a trigger, can be a trigger, hormonal changes, physical or emotional stress, smoking, alcohol, and or sunlight. Sunlight. Preventing complications when an attack does occur. Uh, intravenous injection of heme, injection of hemen is often used to return your body's porphyrin levels to normal. Have you got this so far? I found, I, I, you know, there's a reason I stressed this, the, um, the sunlight thing. Okay. There are also people who are basically allergic to sunlight. I don't know if you know that some of you might, but it's true. So the most common type of cutaneous porphyria is porphyria cutanea tarda PCT. This is an extreme sensitivity to sunlight. So again, according to the Mayo Clinic, exposure to sunlight can cause the following symptoms in individuals with this type of porphyria. Painful and sudden skin redness or erythema and swelling edema. Blisters on your exposed skin, usually the hands, arms, and face. Fragile, thin skin with changes in skin color. Itching. Excessive hair growth in the affected areas, which if you think about it, could cross over with werewolves because I've told you that werewolves and vampires have crossovers at times with some of the legends. Side note, silver. I recently read just a little blip that a reason that silver could possibly have been for vampires is that it metaphorically encapsules sunlight. But we may Google that some more. With, a, uh, and you might have red or brown urine. Again, 
think about some of your vampire stories. They cry blood tears. And in some, they even have blood sweat. Now, you might have thought of that as related to something completely other. But if you think about this, having red or brown urine could connect to having red sweat, a.k.a. blood sweat. Got it? Yeah, I found this very interesting. Um, treatment of cutaneous porphyrias is focused on, of course, reducing the triggers. Like, you got to stay out of the sun. You got to stay out of the sun. Reducing the iron in the body via blood drawing is another method of decreasing porphyrin levels. So you actually need less iron. Certain medications can be used to help. And they often need to take vitamin D supplements to compensate for the avoidance of sunlight. There are four main connections between porphyria symptoms and vampire folklore. I'm just going to roll with it. The first is that vampires drink blood. Because porphyria does result or can result in red or brown urine, this might have led to the false idea that individuals who demonstrated this symptom had been drinking blood. You probably know, it's not, we won't get too into it, but I'm sure you've all experienced that if you eat or drink certain things, particularly drink, or you're taking certain medications, sometimes your pee can change colors. If you drink a lot of energy drinks, certain types of energy drinks, your pee be can be like freaking neon, okay? I know you've done it if you've ever drank. I don't know if Red Bull does it, but I would imagine. They have a lot of vitamin B different, uh, you know, B vitamins, but yeah, you can get some glowing piss when you drink some of that stuff. Okay. Just saying. Uh, another thing is that some physicians actually recommended that porphyria patients drink blood to compensate for the defect in their red blood cells, but it was animal blood. But uh, you can see how that would lead to, ooh, blood drinking creatures. So a, a vampires, and this is actually mostly the, the domain of film though, which I've told you about before. It's, it's not really in folklore that they're gonna burst into flames in the sun, but you could still possibly connect this to symptoms of uh, cutaneous porphyrias, you know, because they do stay out of the sun. Sun exposure is painful. And it would have been very strange, of course, to people who lived centuries ago. Now, they also toss in here that the idea that vampires have fangs and hate garlic might also actually have roots in uh, symptoms of porphyria. Repeated porphyria attacks can result in facial disfigurement and can cause the gums to recede, which much like giving you the illusion of fingernails growing when your skin shrinks when you're dead or that your hair grew because all of it, you know, your skin, you lose all of the fat and muscle in your body, right? So it's going to shrink away. If your gums recede, it might make it appear that you have fangs. 
<laughs> How do you like that? As for the garlic, it has a high sulfur content, which can be a potential trigger for people with porphyria. Therefore, they would avoid garlic. Pa-ching! There you go. Now, you know, some people might think that this just ruins the whole romanticism and, and all of that of vampires, but personally, I think it's freaking fascinating, and you can still have the fantastical vampires while having science. Science! Weird science. Okay, I drink. The third one is tuberculosis. In the 19th century, Rhode Island was considered the vampire capital of America. Did you know? Did you know? Yeah. Between the late 1700s and 1890s, vampire superstitions were prevalent in New England, and so was a disease people referred to as consumption, aka tuberculosis. It's now rare in the U.S., and there are antibiotics to treat it, so thank God, and a vaccine. But there wasn't then. Tuberculosis is caused by Mycobacterium tuberculosis, which is a bacterium that typically attacks your lungs, destroys the tissue there, and could potentially kill a person if they're not treated. In the 1800s, wouldn't be a big, you know, stretch of your imagination to think that people who were dying of tuberculosis were having the life sucked out of them. People suffering from untreated tuberculosis, they lose weight, they become weak, they have fevers, but most importantly, they cough up blood. In addition, it, it, it spreads actually from person to person via air. So if, if an infected person exhales, speaks, or coughs, someone nearby can inhale this. It's airborne. And people at the time didn't know how these things spread. So villagers might have believed that some of those who perished from consumption preyed upon their other living family members because they did not understand why this was spreading. So this led to a series of very disturbing incidents. One of them, which is the story of Mercy Brown, which I have done a podcast on, and this was Exeter, Rhode Island. That's the most famous. Mercy Brown died of tuberculosis in 1892. And in the weeks after her death, her brother Edwin had the same symptoms. And less than two months after Mercy died, the people of Exeter dug up her body, as well as those as her mother and sister, because they'd also died of tuberculosis. And so many people in the same family, of course, died of this disease townspeople actually suspected a vampire. And this is, they, 1892, they literally thought that they were vampires. They found Mercy's body was more intact than those of her relatives, so they decided she was a vampire, removed her heart, burned it, and fed the ashes to Edwin. I did a podcast on this. Uh, um, drinking that mixed in water, I think it was, they thought might cure him or save him, as I as I recall. But of course, he died. He died, because he probably already had tuberculosis anyway. And there you go. There's three diseases 
that might actually have given you some of this vampire shit. Now let's go on here. Let's go on here. I uh, wanted to cover some other illnesses to see. We're going to go to discovermagazine.com and see if we have some different ones. These guys mentioned lupus. That's an autoimmune disease where your white blood cells attack the body's own organs and tissues. Uh, about two-thirds of lupus patients do display uh, sensitivity to ultraviolet rays. And so it gets worse when they are exposed to the sun or very extreme cases, artificial light. But that's not the only one that can cause photosensitivity. And they, of course, mentioned porphyria. Since we were kind of mentioning werewolves, um, I want to see what they say about it. Disease or delusion? Werewolves are monsters of imagination today. In the past, they were regarded as real and they were actively hunted by superstitious communities. Da 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 da. I'm going to skip all this shit. Unlike vampirism, which was almost always diagnosed through accusation by someone else, your status as a werewolf was often asserted by the afflicted themselves. In other words, you would be like, I'm a werewolf! Oh my god! So in the late 16th century, English politician Reginald Scott argued against the accepted beliefs of the day. The way he saw it, lycanthropy was not a disease of the body, but of your mind. It was a delusion. But what about this transference through bites? Recent times, historians have looked for medical conditions that might explain this. In 1963, a medical professional by the name of Lee Illis traced the origins of werewolves back to the same source as vampirism, and that was porphyria. Considering werewolves and vampires do share some characteristics, really shouldn't surprise you. Both are active at night, not because they're going to expire in the sun, but, you know, the bad things and the oogie-boogies always come out at night, right? And actually, we have nocturnal creatures, so this is not actually that surprising. What better way to go stalk your prey if you can sneak through the night? It's just practical, y'all. It's just practical. They both... They, now, this says they both lust for blood, but of course, we mostly think as, of vampires as eating the meat as well. But that's still going to be bloody, y'all. It's still going to be bloody. Of course, somebody challenged it in 1979. And they called their book The Werewolf Delusion. And that was by Ian Woodward, a cultural sociologist, who argued that the physical symptoms of congenital porphyria were too subtle to account for the visual characteristics of werewolves, which in virtually every mythos resemble real wolves. But I'm thinking they didn't actually try to say that they look like fucking wolves. But his idea was rabies, which I also just told you was, was connected to vampires. Now, you have leprosy, you have all kinds of stuff that I think could have totally freaked people out, right? 
But now we're going to go to another web page. And this is villains.fandom.com. And I think that uh, we'll just start right here. The werewolf has been seen in countless cultures around the world, and it is almost always considered vicious, antagonistic, and evil. In many ways, the werewolf may represent the fear of humans have of their own animalistic urges, which is what I think. We're afraid of our own inner demons, our inner beast. And other theories suggest, though, that legends of werewolves were caused by interactions with people suffering from serious mental health issues, rabies, or deformities. Whatever you think the origin is, they are a staple of fantasy and horror fiction. And many characters become werewolves. And the Wolfman is one of the more prominent examples. Though Hollywood has popularized the concept of werewolves, transforming by the light of the full moon, this was not actually a fixed rule in the folklore. In the legends, werewolves came in three types. The cursed human, the evil sorcerer, and the wolf that would disguise itself as a man, because many cultures had a fear of wolves and actually viewed them as demons. In Native American folklore, they say, Evil shapeshifters known as skinwalkers sometimes took on the role of werewolves and they were seen as men and women who would, via black magic, via black magic, transform into animals by night and attack villages. And at the same time, some shamans would try to invoke wolf spirits via rituals. However, the werewolf is not related to Wendigos, which I have also done a podcast episode on, even though some modern tales try to mix them together. In medieval Europe, superstition ran rampant, and as a result, many men and women were persecuted by people that actually believed that they were werewolves. Much like witch trials, the persecuted would be accused of killing children, vandalizing property, or worse, and they were subjected to torture and death. Many outlaws at the time went into hiding to avoid these accusations. Now, there is something called the Picoliki, which is a werewolf and a vampire in Romanian folklore. It is similar to a Vakolak, although the Vakolak sometimes symbolizes a goblin where the Picoliki has always had wolf-like characteristics. Picoliki, like Strigoi, are undead souls which have risen from the grave to harm living people. While a Strigoi possesses anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic qualities similar to the ones it had before death, a Picoliki always resembles a wolf or dog. It's malicious, and violent men are often said to become Pricoliki after their death because they just want to keep fucking up humans. Some Romanian folklore delineates that Pricoliki are werewolves in life, but after they die, they become as they return as vampires. That also gave rise to the legend of vampires turning into animals such as wolves cats or owls. You know that Bram Stoker's Dracula by um, I was going to watch it tonight probably the one with Gary Oldman. He turns into a wolf. That's one example. 
a common theme, of course, of all of these animals, wolves, cats, owls, that they're nocturnal. Even in, in modern times, there are people apparently in rural areas of Romania that are uh, claimed to have been attacked by abnormally large and fierce wolves. These wolves attack silently, unexpectedly, and only solitary people. If you don't go out there walking around alone, victims of these attacks claim that their aggressor wasn't any ordinary wolf, but but that a prickoliti, prickoliki, has come back to life. There's the vakolak. The Varkalak, uh, the origins of, has been debated uh, throughout Romanian folklore. They're not really sure what kind of creature it is. Some say that it's a form of vampire. Some think that it's a rare breed of werewolf. Others think it's a hybrid between the two. It does share many similarities of both. It takes on the appearance of a wolf, comes out during certain phases of the moon, and the moon has been said to turn red when the Varkalak is on the hunt. The creature rises from an unmarked grave, that's vampiric, attacks nearby villages, drains its victims of their blood, that's vampiric, and the best way to kill this creature is to feed it its own flesh. And that is uh, something I've seen with werewolves. In fact, if you've ever played The Witcher 3, The Wild Hunt, there is a quest you can do where the only way to vanquish and end the curse of one creature is to feed him his own werewolf flesh. There is the Vicolacas. I mentioned them before, Greek folklore. And in Salento, Greeks traditionally believe that a person could become a Vicolacas after death if you were sacrilegious in life, or excommunicated, or buried in unconsecrated ground, or you ate the meat of a sheep which had been wounded by a wolf or a werewolf. You see, vampires and werewolves are just inextricably linked. Some believe that a werewolf itself, again, could become a powerful vampire after being killed, and it would keep its wolf-like fangs, hairy palms, and glowing eyes. Again, with Dracula, when he's in his older form, when they when uh, Jonathan Harker first meets him, he has hairy palms. Did you remember that? Well, now you know. There's the Jarouge. They are said to be an evil vampire slash werewolf from Haiti. And there is a superstition that werewolf spirits known locally as Rouge, red eyes, okay, can possess the bodies of unwitting persons and nightly transform them into cannibalistic lupine creatures that take babies from houses, but they also drink their blood. And when they eat them, they take their soul. And it's, and it's voodoo related. The Haitian Rouges typically try to trick, trick mothers into giving away their children voluntarily. They'll wake them at night and ask them permission. And the confused and disoriented mother might say yes or no. Haitian Jalouges different from traditional European werewolves 
because their habit of actively trying to spread their lycanthropic condition to others. They want to turn others. There is the Fakaskoldas. I don't know if I'm saying that right, is a rare species from Hungary. It is a, a lycanthrope turned vampire. Fakaskoldas has uh, some other not often heard of properties. It can appear in the form of a huge black wolf, but also change form at will by transforming into a cat, dog, goat, and that way it can go into villages and not arouse any suspicion. Despite these powers, it is a discreet, sneaky creature which carefully se selects its victims before it attacks, almost always the elderly or sick people. Maybe it thinks that uh, closeness to natural death makes them more docile. Once it chooses a victim, the Farcascoldas drinks the blood through numerous incisions and piercings made with claws or teeth. It's still at risk, though, because after being satisfied, the body swells. Sound like a dead body in a grave that bloats? Yeah. So the body swells, and that makes their return to the grave before sunrise difficult. Mm-hmm. Seen a pattern? There's the Aswang. The Aswang is a vampire werewolf who transforms from a human to a canine form at night and eats human flesh. And this is from the Philippines. Aswangs dwell at night in locations such as cemeteries and the woods. Their powers are significantly or sometimes totally reduced during the daytime. However, Despite being described as wild monsters that often live in the wilderness and outskirts of society, they are also described as creatures that are capable of living within close proximity of or even within a village, which leads several people to report Oswang attacks, with, uh, attacks within large populated towns and cities. They have apparently an ability to adapt and live within the urban and rural environments while still maintaining their feral, monstrous nature. Duh, duh, duh. There is the Vilkolakis. That's a Lithuanian vampire werewolf. It can be created by the curse of a witch. Vilkolakises have a human mind, but do not speak. They cannot speak. They do not mix with true wolves. They often like to stay close to living places and even settle in livestock with livestock. In order not to be one, you must feed. Uh, what is uh, this? Is a little confusing. In order not to be, you must feed like real wolves. In some stories, the Vicolakis are peaceful, and they do no wrong. The more dangerous are those who become one voluntarily. Bruxa. This is from The Witcher, of course, as well. The Brixer, Okukubuth, is a vampire werewolf that consumes both flesh and blood in Portugal. Before becoming an undead vampire, Brixa start out as witches. Once they become a vampire, the Brixa have a craving for blood, mostly the blood of children or people who travel alone. And as in the game, they let out that scream that makes your ears ring and stuns you. The Volkodlak, and that is a vampire from Slovenia, 
who has the power to transform into a werewolf. It arises from the union between a vampire and a lycanthrope. So that is a hybrid, my friends. Wodalak. That is a werewolf that died and became a vampire in Serbia. Upir. U-P-Y-R. Upir. Vampir. This Russian vampire revenant is created when a heretic, sorcerer, werewolf, or witch dies, or when a child, or is the child of a werewolf and a witch. There is the Lobshoman. In Brazil, anyone who was formerly a werewolf in life is certain to become a Lobshoman after death. They are humanoid vampires, which are a little over two inches high and resemble furry bald-headed monkeys with a wizened evil face. So I suppose people are really scared of monkeys. It attacks mostly women. <laughs> we don't know why. It does not kill its victims, but it takes a small amount of blood. Umbitiku, the little drink. There's the Mjotovek. There's a lot of uh, folkloric crossover between vampires and werewolves, and the Belarusian creature knows, known as the Mitrovek is an extreme intersection of the two. When a werewolf or witch dies, it might rise from the grave as a particularly powerful vampire. Particularly? Particularly. That's what I said. Looks-wise, it has more in common with the Asian um, floaty-head vampires than with European cousins. The head and upper chest rip from the rest of its body when it launches in its nighttime search for blood. <laughs> there is a werewolf revenant. Uh, before the end of the 19th century, the Greeks believed that corpses of werewolves, if not destroyed, would come back in the form of wolves or hyenas, which would prowl battlefields, drinking the blood of dying soldiers. In some areas of rural Germany, Poland, and northern France, it was also once believed that people who died in mortal sin came back to life as blood-drinking wolves. These, quote, undead werewolves would return to their human corpse form at daylight. They were dealt with by decapitation with a spade and exorcism by a parish priest. The head would then be thrown into a stream where the weight of its sins was thought to weigh it down. Sometimes the same method used to dispose of ordinary vampires would be used. Now we have the Wampir, the A-M-P-Y-R. In South Slavic beliefs from the 16th and the first half of the 17th centuries, they speak about souls who died under the curse, 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 I think it's a curse, I think that's a typo, of a werewolf, and they were therefore destined to return to the world of the living as vampires. Records from the first half of the 20th century from southeast Montenegro and central west Serbia note that every vampire had to take up the form of a wolf for a certain amount of time. Blut Asager. The Bosnian Blut Asager is a hairy vampire who doesn't have a skeleton and he can shapeshift into a rat or wolf. Rats you also saw in Bram Stoker's Dracula. But I love the fact that it's just boneless. <laughs> like, wah. Velez. There's the Velez. 
in the vampiric lore of Lithuania, the type of vampiric fae called a veles is created when a woman who has been frivolous or idle her whole life dies. When she returns, the true form is that of a cloud-like spirit, but it can assume the appearance of a beautiful young woman with long flowing hair and the most beautiful sounding voice you have ever heard. Her voice is so alluring and memorable that it can cause anyone who has heard it to lose all concerns and thoughts for anything else, including the need to drink, eat, or sleep for several days. It's like you're caught in the fairyland. And as her praised are typically men, the Veles usually appears provocatively dressed or nude. Like this Sam, Sam, no, Samodib... Samodiva, the simplest word sometimes fucked me up. Samodiva, from Bulgarian lore, the Veles is a fierce warrior riding upon a deer or stag. They use a bow and arrow when in, comp in combat or hunting, and it is so powerful that it shakes the ground when it enters the physical altercation. Veles have the ability to magically heal and shapeshift into a falcon, snake, swan, and wolf. Galapote, El Galapote, and El Ugaru are both legendary magical creatures that can change shape. They are men who can become animals and then become men again. Galapote can also turn into inanimate objects like tree trunks and stones. He can transfer his wishes to the animals and he can make the animal fulfill his wishes. Galapotes are cruel and violent and strong. Bullets do not damage them. They, are, they like to cause havoc by scaring people traveling at night. They won't allow you to pass. And they can also make sure that you get hopelessly lost. Guess what else they can do, my friends? They can turn into wolves. And this is the Lugaru, from the French word meaning werewolf. They can also fly like a bird. They are, the high-flying bird form is called the Zangano, a Zanku. And this legendary being sucks the blood of children at the night, and he can also be invisible. Kutrub. The Kutrub is a type of jinn, ifrit, or demon in Arabian folklore, and they specialize in being thieves. They are often called the Arabian werewolf, similar to a ghoul because it supposedly haunts graveyards and eats corpses. Lublin, or Lublin. The French demonologist wrote about a type of werewolf called a Lublin, a haunted cemetery to exhume and devour corpses. I should have just started with that. I mean, Jesus, that's really good. But now I'm just going to keep hopping on over on the bing, bing, bing here, because I wanted to talk about silver. Why does silver harm vampires? Well, the most common ones include imbuing with or crafting standard weapons out of silver, like swords, daggers, arrows, and bullets. Another thing you can do is trick a vampire into drinking something that is imbued with silver, like colloidal silver, which is used by humans for healing purposes. Side note, if you drink enough of that, your skin will turn bluish and it's permanent. So don't fucking do it. It's, it's snake oil. Don't freaking drink colloidal silver. What the hell? This is not a mineral that occurs 
naturally or normally in your body, you will make your skin change color. Okay, I said it. Now, supposedly a, a wound uh, in a vampire uh, made with silver doesn't heal, heal quickly, but they can still heal from small amounts, while werewolves, on the other hand, are much more vulnerable, like ten times more vulnerable. Werewolves will react to the slightest amount of silver. You need more pure silver to hurt a vampire, according to this. This is occultist.net. I was really hoping they would say more about it. I'll probably cut that out. Occultist.net. Are vampires allergic to silver? There are a lot of cultures who say that vampires are allergic to silver. I know you know werewolves, but also vampires. And I've just told you by some of the things I read to you previously that there's a lot of crossover with werewolves and vampires. This is the one that says that silver encapsulates the power of the sun. Many people actually would suspect that gold would hold that power. Of course, it just looks like the sun and that silver would be of the moon. And that's what I would relate it to. But they make a good point that the moon reflects the light of the sun. And silver is a mineral that is closest to the moon, but for that reason, contains the power of the sun. Blah, 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 blah. The connection between werewolves and Silva. Everyone knows it, right? Silver bullet, silver bullet, werewolves. Only silver bullets. Yet, like the belief that werewolves could only transform on nights when the moon is full, the connection between werewolves and silver is modern. Scouring the folklore of centuries past, you do find a dearth of silver. It's not, however, merely the creation of Hollywood screenwriters. There's a tradition dating back to at least the 1800s, but that's not that long ago, in Germany and England that silver presented a weakness for werewolves. A snippet from a German folktale of the period is this. A clever lad suggested that they gather all the silver buttons, goblets, belt buckles, and so forth, and melt them down into bullets for their muskets and pistols. But why silver? This one suggests that it would be silver and the moon, which would make sense for werewolves. The sun would be vampires and, and the moon for werewolves. So basically, I think they're all full of shit. <laughs> I said it. They're all full of shit. And none of them affect either one of them. And so anyway, I don't even know what the fuck I just recorded. I was just giving you some stupid little trivia. This would have been more fun live, but like I said, I didn't know how the hell to do it live. I hope you're having a happy, happy, happy Halloween. I don't know if you went trick-or-treating. I don't even know if I'm going to release this after I listen to it and try to edit it. Please check out Paris Immortal Eternal Edition available on Amazon, and I will catch you on the flip side. Have another modern greta. And don't forget to carry your silver and but just don't fucking drink it because 
Turn your skin blue.